Well, come with me to uh, Revelation chapter 21 that Peter read for us just a little bit earlier, uh, where we're looking at heaven. Basically, this is what this chapter's about. The bride, the lamb's wife, the new Jerusalem, heaven. But let's just think for a moment. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ come into this world? Well, he came preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he came with that message in contrast to this world and what it thinks of and what it values. This world and the kingdom of Satan, which is what this world is, the kingdom of Antichrist. Lord Jesus Christ came preaching the kingdom of God. That was his message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, is what it says. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you know the majority of people in this world do not know that they're lost? Lost regarding what? Lost regarding God. Lost regarding heaven. Lost regarding the kingdom of God. Lost regarding the truth of God. They're lost. They don't know the way to God. They know nothing about him. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he came for. Has God shown you that you are lost and on that wide road to eternal hell, except he saves you? That's where you're going along with the rest of humanity. It's a broad way that leads to destruction. You're on that road. You are lost unless God shows you you are lost and comes to save you and rescue you from it. Why did he come into the world? Why did Jesus, who is Jesus? God manifest, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Why did he come into this world? Why did God become that which he wasn't before in time at Bethlehem, when he became man, when he inhabited a body? Why did he come into this world? Why did Jesus come into this world? The angel told Joseph. He came to save his people from their sins. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He, he didn't say he shall try to save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. Every last single one of them shall be saved from their sins. Every last single one of them shall be fitted for the kingdom of God. What's the ultimate objective of it all? What is the ultimate objective of the mission of Christ into this world to save his people from their sins? If you turn to John 17, the great high priestly prayer, the night before he was crucified, verse 24, he tells us exactly what the objective was of his coming. He prays in that prayer, Father, and this is the disciple, the apostles, are there with him in this room, and they're listening to what he's saying, and John records his words, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovedst me before the foundation of the world. This is the will of God, for Christ is God. This is God. He's prayed already, restore the glory to me. It was only for a little while that he was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, for the salvation of his people. But he says, Father, restore the glory to me that I had with you before the world was. Uh, you know, and he wills, 
If God wills, I put in a little piece in the bulletin, if God wills, who can possibly stop it? Father, I will that they also, who? Whom thou hast given me. Who's he talking about? That multitude, which no man can number. Chosen in Christ, as Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Christ, ordained to eternal life, as Acts uh, 13.48 says. Those whom thou hast given me, the people, the, the sinners that God the Father gave to God the Son before the foundation of the world, united with him, put in union with him, betrothed to him, betrothed as a bride is betrothed to her husband, betrothed to him from before the beginning of time. He says, I will that they, every last one of them, what? Be with me where I am. Be with me in heaven. Be with me in that glorious kingdom of God, that they may behold my glory, that they may behold the redemptive, gracious glory of our God in Christ. This is his will. So how can it not come to pass? You see, many say, well, I don't believe that stuff. You're entitled to go along with it if you want. It's, it's rubbish as far as I'm concerned. You know, if they're right, if in this life that, that is all that there is, just what we get in this life, well, is, is not the philosophy right that you should get out of it whatever you can? As, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, and then that's it, finished, we're no better than anybody else. He says, we're of all men most miserable. Unbeliever, if that's your philosophy, then uh, Paul agrees, we're of all men most miserable to put our trust into things of eternity if there isn't such a thing. But that isn't the case. That isn't the case. Heaven is real. Eternity is real. What does the old catechism say? The chief end of man, the chief objective of man is what? to glorify God and listen, to enjoy him forever. To enjoy God forever. You know, this is the great reward of sinners saved by grace. In Genesis 15 verse 1, God says to Abram, when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he was going to make a great nation of him, he said, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. You're in an enemy country, but I am thy shield. I am thy exceeding great reward. Do you have any sense of it? Do I have any sense of it? God is our great, exceeding great reward. Are we doing what Jesus encouraged in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God. What do you seek in this life as you go through this life? Oh, good experiences in this life. No, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things that you need will be added to you. Where are you going to lay up treasure? In your bank account, in your possessions, in the things... You know what they say, it's so true, there are no pockets in shrouds. You can't take any of it with you when you leave this life. Lay up treasure in heaven, in heaven. Look for that eternal city, that eternal city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. You see, sin mars everything in this life. You say, I'm finding it difficult to see this. Sin mars everything in this life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, 
neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us, his believing people, by his Spirit. He reveals the truth of heaven, of eternity, to his believing people, and it's his Spirit that does it. God has told us of his eternal kingdom. Jesus came preaching the nearness of his kingdom. You know, Paul said to the Athenians about God, in him we live and move and have our being. He's not far from each and every one of us. And you, unbeliever, he's not far from you. He's there. In him we live and move and have our being. He set hope in his people's hearts. God set hope in the hearts of his believing people. What hope? A heavenly hope. Colossians 1.15 There is a hope laid up for you in heaven. And it isn't a, I hope it might happen, but then again it might not. It's a certainty. It's, a, it's an anticipation of that which will surely come. We hope to be with Christ and be like him. This is what uh, John says in his first epistle. In chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Do you want me to explain to you exactly how heaven will be? I don't know. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is, he is pure. Do you have this hope in yourself? Do you have it? This hope is it's the gift of God to have that. The object of his believing people's affections is in Colossians 3 and verse 2, where it says, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your affections there. Do you know there's so many professing believers, professing Christians, who live their lives as if everything they ever aspired to and wanted is here in the flesh, in this world, in their houses, their possessions, their family, everything else around them, their talents. It's as if, it, it's as if that's it. But believing people's affections should be on things above where Christ is. Old Job, the oldest book in the Bible, his affection was set on heavenly certainty. Let me remind you of that in Job 19. You know it, it's, uh, it's the season where they sing Handel's Messiah in the choirs. And uh, this, these verses is, is one of the sections of Handel's Messiah. Job 19 and, and verse 23. Verse, Job 19, 23. Oh, this, this is Job in great suffering of flesh wishing that he could die because he's in such suffering of flesh. And he says this with his, with his so-called comforters around him, saying, it's your own fault because you've been a sinner. And he says, oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Well, they are, Job. We've got them here. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Listen. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. What's this Redeemer, Job? The one who's redeemed me from the curse of the law, 
the one who's redeemed me from my sin and their consequences, the one who's paid the price of release, of liberty from the curse of sin. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Oh, that day is coming when he shall stand upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, you know, we're all dying. All of us are dying. All of us are dying. Though, though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's the hope of believers. So in Revelation 21 and 22, in vision, in spiritual metaphor, in symbolism, and we know it's symbolism because the pictures it paints, as far as this space-time creation are concerned, are absolutely impossible. The, it's the symbolism of impossible pictures. In those things, in these chapters, the truth of God's eternal paradise is unveiled. Have you ever thought how the book of God begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with the paradise of God with no sin? Genesis 1 and 2, completely without sin. There's Adam and Eve and the, the creation in perfect harmony in paradise. And the last two chapters of the book are God's eternal paradise accomplished. So let's see the celestial city. We touched on this last week. In the first eight verses of chapter 21, we see what John saw, the new heaven and the new earth. For the first earth, where we are now, was passed away, and there was no more sea. There was no more of that tumultuous um, mass of humanity, which is what the sea pictures, from which the kingdom of Satan arose in Revelation 13. And he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is actually a bride adorned for her husband. This is the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife coming down. This is the celestial city, the heavenly Jerusalem that is described in this chapter. Uh, Bunyan called it that, the celestial city, but it's all in accordance with God's word. You know what Hebrews says in chapter 13 of Hebrews and verse 14. Here in this life, in this world, Oh, that we might get hold of this as believers. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, a far better one, just like the one that Abraham looked for. As I've already said in Hebrews 11, it says, he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, not a city of this world, of this space, time and creation, but here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come in the heavenlies. A city of peace, of safety, of comfort, of sinless bliss. We can, in our sinful flesh, we can scarcely imagine it. Of intimate, endless communion with God. What is it? To enjoy him forever. Intimate, endless communion with God. To enjoy him forever. Everything that afflicts us in the flesh in this life removed from us. Read Don Fortner's article in the bulletin. Look at verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What a wonderful promise to heavy-laden sinners burdened with the consequences of sin in the flesh. He promises the water 
of endless life. You know, the, the water is such a picture of the life of God in the soul of man. In John 7, Jesus says, if you've got a thirst for this water of the life of God, come to me and it will be like a spring, a fountain within your very being. Look at verse 6, he said unto me, who is it that's speaking? It is done, it's accomplished. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the cause of all things and I am the completion of all things, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst for this life of God of the fountain of the water of life freely. I will give it to him. It's free. Come, everyone that thirsts. Isaiah 55, drink of the water of life freely. We're joint heirs with Christ because he will give it all unto all of his people. Joint heirs with Christ. But you know, all of these wonderful promises, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. This intimate communion with God. But look, it's only for God's redeemed children. Verse 8, not the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. No, not any who bear the mark of the beast. You know, there was a mark in Revelation 13, a mark in their hands and in their foreheads. The works that they do, the thoughts that they think, are in accordance with the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world. No, 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 not for them. This is for those who've been redeemed, who've been plucked as brands from the burning out of the fire of the justice of God, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, washed clean from their sins, made the righteousness of God in him, redeemed from the curse of the law in him. No, this is for believers. So then, in verse 9, one of the destroying angels, this is one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues in Revelation 16, he says, come here and I will show you the bride the Lamb's wife. And that's what I've entitled this message, The Bride, the Lamb's Wife. He comes and shows more of that new kingdom, that new city, that bride, the Lamb's wife. The Lamb's wife is uh, that which Ephesians chapter 5 alludes to in verses 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is that which John saw coming down from God out of heaven. The New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. You see, he, he, he says, he's been talking about husbands and wives, but in verse 32 he says it's a great mystery. But what I'm really speaking about is Christ and his church, his church, ecclesia, his elect people, whom he redeemed with his blood. But in verse 10, to see this bride, this wife of the Lamb, verse 10, he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. To see it, you need a vantage point. You need a vantage point to see this bride. Why? Because the bride is a great city. This Jerusalem, which one are we talking about? I'm not talking about that pile of stones in the Middle East, which is in such perpetual political turmoil. No, 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 no. 
that was only ever a picture in Old Testament days, but not now. No, I'm talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm talking about the one that Galatians 4.26 means when he says, Jerusalem which is above is free. This is free Jerusalem, free from sin. The, the, the Jerusalem of God, the true Jerusalem, the true peace with God, Jerusalem, peace with God. She comes down from God and she has the glory of God. Verse 11, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, pure light. You know the scriptures speak of the light of the glory of God. Second Corinthians 4 verse 6, the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is true light. We, we struggle to grasp physically what these means because we are creatures of space and time. But this is eternity. This is outside of time. This is the life of God. It, we, we don't know what we shall be, but we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Look at the dimensions of this city. Verse 12 to verse 17, a great and high wall, 12 gates, uh, names written, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles. There, it's quite clear, isn't it? The, the foundations of the wall are the names of the apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, uh, th this angel, and he had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and its length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. 12,000 furlongs. That's 1,500 miles. It's a cube, 1,500 miles. We're talking about a huge city. There's no city on earth even today that comes remotely close to anything like that, but a city that is a cube, not, not a square, not a flat, not an area. And he measured the wall thereof. Oh, a cube that's got a wall. A cube that's got, where's, where's this wall on this cube? You see, you can't fit it together, can you? It's, it's an impossible picture. You, 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 cannot, um, you, you cannot translate it into things that you can draw on a sheet of paper, as many people trying to interpret this book have tried to do, and you come up with nonsense. It just doesn't work because it's a vision of things outside of this space-time uh, reality. The building of the wall of it was of jasper. The city was of pure gold like clear glass. It, it can't be literal. Try and get a city planner to draw this. It's just a vision. It's a vision, a glorious vision. But what ideas does the vision contain? It's this, that the heaven of God, the bride of Christ, the kingdom of God is huge. It's 1,500 mile cube, 220 foot high wall, 12 gates, angels, tribes, foundations, apostles. It's clearly not literal in terms of this space-time creation. So what does it picture? A wall speaks of completion. When Nehemiah rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, it was, it was, there was a point when it was completed. And in Isaiah 60 and verse 18, we read, thou shalt call thy walls salvation. These walls picture salvation and thy gates praise. A cube speaks 
of the Holy of Holies, which was in the tabernacle, the pattern given to Moses. The Holy of Holies, where nobody could go except the high priest, and then only once a year with the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. That was a cube. The measurements of it in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, was a cube. And what did it speak of? It spoke of the intimate presence of God. The intimate presence of God with nothing in between, nothing stopping. Verse 3 of chapter 21. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Its size speaks of a multitude which no man can number. The number 12 is in there. 12 is 3, the number of God, times 4, the number of creation. It's when God works on this creation, we have the election of grace, the remnant according to the election of grace. Ten speaks of fullness in this creation. It, it, it all pictures that which is innumerable, even to the eye of redeemed saints. But every one of them is particular to God. The twelve tribes, the Israel of God. The angels at the gates, they're the gathering angels who have harvested the redeemed of God from the world, as other pictures in the New Testament show us. The twelve foundations of the wall are the apostles. It's clear there. We don't have to try and interpret it. It tells us that's the apostles. What is it about the apostles? The church in the New Testament, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The foundation of the kingdom of God is the gospel of Christ. That was the apostles' doctrine, the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of salvation accomplished. It's the gospel of satisfaction made. It's the gospel that for a multitude that no man can number, God is just in that their sins have been punished and paid for in the substitute who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And thereby, those who were sinners are justified from all things that would condemn them. There is therefore now, says Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look at the materials of this bride of Christ, this heavenly Jerusalem, this, this Jerusalem above which is free. In verses 18 to 21, we have all of these precious stones, uh, jasper, gold, as clear as, uh, as glass, all manner of precious stones, um, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, uh, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, Topaz, it is hard to pronounce this next one, <laughs> Chrysoprasus, Jacinth, and the twelfth and Amethyst. It's, what's it picturing? It's picturing value. It's picturing preciousness. It's enthralling to look at. The vision that John must have had is enthralling to look at. There's a mesmerizing beauty. Any of you, this, this is a very weak illustration but any of you that have been to the Tower of London and have been into the place where they keep the crown jewels and you've looked at the crown jewels in the light in that room and you have to admit that it is mesmerizingly beautiful those sparkling diamonds and different color it's all there but how much more must this be and gold speaks of faith 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter talks about believers' faith being tried. Their faith, which is more precious than gold. Only those who have true faith, and that true faith is the gift of God, not of yourselves, says Ephesians 2, verse 8. Only those who have true faith. And what do they have faith in? What do they have faith in? They have faith in the faith of Christ. That's what they have faith in. They have faith in the faithful accomplishment of redemption of Christ, the work he came and faithfully did. Their faith is in the faith of Christ. That's why the King James Version is right when it talks about the faith of Christ and not our faith in Christ. They have true faith in the faith of Christ. In this life, these ones only, those who have that faith in this life as sinners saved by grace, only those will enter this eternal city. Only those. Jewels speak of shining light. Pearls speak of one pearl. Do you remember uh, Jesus speaking of that parable of the, uh, the man seeking for jewels and he finds pearls and then he finds one pearl which is so valuable that all the other pearls, basically, he, he throws them away. The pearl of greatest price, Matthew 13, 46. The pearl of great price, uh, it, it speaks of Christ and it speaks of the way in because each pearl is a gate, it's the way in. And who is the way in to the kingdom of God? I am the door, said Jesus. I am the door of the sheep. I am the door, whoever comes through me, he, he, he is the one that's in my kingdom. And then the temple in verses 22 to 27. I saw no temple therein. In this vision, there's no vision of a temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The Old Testament temple was where, in picture, God dwelt on earth with his people, his Israel, in Jerusalem, in that physical city in the Middle East, in symbolism. It was only a very small part of Jerusalem, an even smaller part of the, the, the land of Israel. And the way into it, the way into it was barred. It was only, as I've already said, by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement with an acceptable sacrifice. But the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, is all temple. It is all temple. God and his people in perfect, sinless, uninterrupted fellowship. Verse 24, the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. The nations, God saves his people from every tribe and tongue and kindred. This is the elect of God, an innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue and kindred. And walking speaks of an experience of existence. It's, it's real. They walk in the light of it and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honour into it. Who are those who are the kings of the earth? It's not talking about earthly fleshly monarchs. No, it's talking about those who are redeemed from the earth and, as the Word of God tells us, are made kings and priests unto God. Revelation 1 verse 6, Revelation 5 verse 10. They're king, made kings and priests to God by the salvation accomplished by Christ. The glory and the honour of the nations must be the glory of God with which he endows his redeemed people. What does he endow them with? The robe of righteousness. Or as Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, you've clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
This is glorious in its freedom from any form of idolatry, any form of spiritual adultery. This temple just speaks of uninterrupted communion between the redeemed of God and the God who has redeemed them in Christ. What a contrast to Babylon. But then there's a warning in verse 27. Again, as in verse 8, in verse 27 we read, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, only them. Nothing outside of Christ shall enter. Nothing. There's a parable where, in parable, somebody who clearly isn't in Christ and clearly is not equipped to be there by the doing and dying of the Lord Jesus Christ tries to enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb and he's cast into outer darkness showing that nothing outside of Christ shall enter only those he has cleansed from sin with his precious blood only that multitude that no man can number chosen in him before the foundation of the world there is nothing that leans on the flesh that is allowed therein because all of our righteousnesses all that we try to do to earn favor with God and qualification for this kingdom with God all of it is filthy rags in his sight the true circumcision the true people of God the true bride of Christ are those who worship God in the spirit who have no confidence in the flesh and who rejoice in Christ Jesus. I got that the wrong way around, didn't I? Rejoice in Christ Jesus in the middle, and then no confidence in the flesh. It's only the multitude, redeemed from the law's curse by Christ, that are there. As, as Paul, as he's writing Philippians chapter 3, these people, all his believing people, have one overriding ambition. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 9, what's your ambition, Paul? My ambition is that I may win Christ. What is it to win Christ? It's to be found with this multitude in this glorious city of God, this bride of Christ, <clears throat> that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It's apprehended by faith, but it's righteousness which is as a result of the faith of Christ in redemption. And thereby, with that, if you're found there in him, having that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, you will find yourself accepted in the beloved. And if we believe these words of this book, you will hear the words, because Jesus has promised it, and he cannot lie. You will hear these words in Matthew 25 that we read right at the start, which will be these. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me, that where I am, you may be also. This is my will, Father, I will, that those that you have given me, this multitude, shall be with me where I am, and shall be home, behold my glory. Do you have this hope in you? Do you know, as Job did, that you shall see your Redeemer, 
in your resurrected flesh, though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Each night, as you go to bed, can you say with the psalmist, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Amen.